Good morning, good afternoon or good evening, depending on when you're watching or listening to this instructional video or audio package on interpersonal neurosynchrony, I-N-S. And we'll explain what that is all about in a few moments. But I'd like to welcome uh, my partner in crime, so to speak, uh, a master of interpersonal neurosynchrony and all the associated offshoots of that. And you'll find out why he's laughing in a minute. So please welcome the man himself, Mr. Paul Gutteridge. How are you doing, thanks, Paul? Thanks, Alex. Yeah, great. Thanks, Alex. Cheers. As you are laughing, I suppose it's wisest that before we start to sort of brainstorm where we're going to go with this in terms of different sessions and different topics is... Why were you laughing at interpersonal neurosynchrony? Well, two reasons. Number one, it's difficult to say. And number two, <laughs> whenever it comes to anything neuroscientific, um, gosh, they make it so complicated. Such long words and explanations for things that actually, well, ultimately in the real world can be boiled down to some fairly straightforward things, which I'm sure we're going to get into on the podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we will over the various sessions. Now, with that in mind, because this might be this might end up being we don't even know what this particular session is today, which for the historical record we're recording on the 10th of August 2023. This may be that we bought this out as a podcast to give people a bit of an insight into what the interpersonal neurosynchrony training video and audio and possibly some notes with it as well, package will contain to get them to register their interest to be alerted of the special launch discount price. That may be a, a route that this goes. Um, so we will see. But going off interpersonal neurosynchrony, you said they use fancy terms. People who know me, if they don't know me, they'll soon come to terms with the fact that I like to cut out the bullshit. So what interpersonal neurosynchrony sounds nice but it sounds to me like one of those things and i do know what it is but i mean devil's advocate for viewers and listeners that is being given a fancy title like you said just to make people who study it or use it feel like they belong to some special secret group that know these things that other people <laughs> don't and that that therefore gives them some kind of position of elevation or power above other people um what are your thoughts on that oh i'm sure that that kind of stuff does take place it's like uh the black magic in at the secret source you have to know this code to to get through and to be accepted um the more generous side of me would say that actually these are really important things how do humans interact how do they communicate what's the evidence and actually, there's some really clever people who are doing some fantastic research using fMRI scanners, um, how language works, et cetera, and how our bodies respond at a, a deeply conscious and a subconscious level to what we in the business would probably call the mechanics of rapport. And, and I think it's really useful that, that the scientific community um, actually provide well, I, I think it gives us confidence to know actually the stuff that we're doing, whatever the stuff that you're doing is, um, actually now has a basis in science. So maybe it's telling us what we already instinctively know, but actually to have some good old rigor behind it is super useful. So, yeah, it could be taken two ways. It could be fancy smancy stuff over here. But actually more and more generous side says there's some great people doing some excellent work that gives us confidence in actually what you're doing works. And then 
you can codify it and you can replicate it. That's always useful. Because I always play devil's advocate. Uh, <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a podcast called Hypnosis Week. This may become an episode to let people know about the forthcoming release of the Interpersonal Neurosynchrony course. Um, with that in mind, I am going to play devil's advocate. Um, and I have a few points. So I'm logging them here so that I don't forget them. Number one, I'm going to go back to the idea that why the fuck call it Interpersonal Neurosynchrony when effectively you've just said in our terms, in most people's normal terms, just saying that it's the use, effective use of rapport would mean pretty much the same thing. Why? <laughs> why? why? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think. So in part of my other world, um, I mean, you know this, Alex, in part of my other world, I... Oh, which I we're going to in... come to shortly because I oh, want okay. people to learn about that. But yeah. Sorry, continue. So in, in, in my other world, in you know areas of what they call track two diplomacy, etc., um, actually defining terms is really, really important. Language is super powerful. You know, language and influence. It, well, we all know propaganda, all that kind of jazz. Language is super important. So defining terms and having specificity around our definitions is is helpful. And I think when it comes to, you know, when we talk about rapport, my goodness, we may have loads of different definitions unspoken about what rapport is. So I think when when scientists look at stuff and they say, look, these are a specific set of words that mean X, Y and Z, it helps cut through. Oh, gosh, there could be loads of different ways of understanding this. And the more specific and technical the language undefined actually then drives out. This is specifically what we're talking about. Even if you might say, oh, no, that sounds like a lot like rapport. It's a specific way of approaching that subject and then saying this is the breakdown biochemically and all the feedback and the neurophysiology that takes place, which means rapport. But that's my fancy I mean, answer. OK, um, again, none of this is meant to be offensive either to you or, or to viewers or <laughs> listeners who might have their preconceived ideas. It's just I like to push the envelope and go, eh. That's all well and good, but does it really fucking matter if we know what's going on chemically? Or rather, let's rephrase that to where, because I know we spoke before and there are examples where it does matter and help, where would it be beneficial to actually know that these things are going on? I suppose there's a few answers to that. So my first answer, say from a therapeutic point of view, I think if if one can establish that something chemical is taking place, then we can therefore understand, OK, so is this a pathological issue? So therefore it needs medicating. And I know you have opinions on medication in mental health, um, mental health, uh, health and treatment. Or actually, it's not a pathogenic problem. It's a salutogenic, in other words, solution based understanding. So if we can say, Actually, these bunch of chemicals are taking place and that's normal. And within that range, you can have certain treatments. Actually, we're seeing certain chemical changes happen, which are pathological, pathogenic, sorry, which means that we may need to treat medication. Now, all that said, what's the point in knowing the science around, oh, these chemicals are doing this in the brain, etc.? Well, when it comes to some of the other stuff, which I'm sure we're going to get onto, if you understand some of the process and, and can actually observe um, through body language, tonality of voice, breathing, 
color tone changes in skin in different parts of the face and the neck, pupil dilation, fine digit movement, whatever we've been trained in fancy schmancy world, actually being able to observe those, they are happening faster than our prefrontal cortex, our higher critical reasoning faculty, the fancy bit of our brain, which makes us such amazing human beings and sometimes very wicked human beings. But once we can spot those things taking place, because they're happening faster than our cognition, um, but they're firing nevertheless, we can therefore make um, more effective interventions, whether that is uh, from a therapeutic point of view, whether your business is coaching, or whether you're doing more covert or overt stuff around influence, persuasion, and um, whatever else is in that world, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Oh, we will, because we're going to dig into your background <laughs> shortly. But I just want to kind of type the loose ends on this, because, again, playing <laughs> devil's advocate. But although I'm playing devil's advocate, the truth of the matter is with most of these things it is what I genuinely, sincerely believe in is my yeah. experience. So interpersonal neurosynchrony. Sounds nice, but there again, it's just a term that effectively means getting rapport. I mentioned before this idea that, well, I have things given fancy titles just so that people feel that they belong to some special group and they feel better and all powerful because they know something and they're elevated. So therefore, arguably, it gives them a sense of confidence and in some level, a boost to their self-image and self-esteem and yeah. self-identity. Now, when they get that boost and they've got that inner, I know a secret you don't type thing. Now, some people take that too far and become Mr. or Mrs. Smug, um, like people who go on these NLP courses, walk out and become the most annoying twat in the room because <laughs> uh, they're taking things way too literally. But the people that don't go way over the top and use the things correctly as we're covering future sessions of the actual course end up with a kind of certainty or a knowing or a confidence within that knowing these things will help them achieve X, Y, or Z or identify X, yeah. Y, or Z. And because yeah. of that, yeah. I, I believe that that gives them a certainty, a confidence, a calmness that automatically is going to alter that individual's body language, non-verbal cues, mm -hmm. the way that they are acting around other people, just because of this inner knowing and certainty um, and confidence in what they've learned, that by virtue means they're going to, I would argue, just be a more relaxed, calm, in the moment, aware with all senses human being, so naturally are going to become more aware of things and act better and be more likely to develop rapport, even if suddenly they didn't use any of the techniques they'd learned yeah, that gave yeah. them that confidence. What, what, yeah, what, yeah. What's your sort of thoughts on that? Oh, there's loads in there. There's loads in there. So, yeah, I would agree that having, having clarity gives you confidence. And confidence means that you're physiologically, mentally, then physiologically, that mind-body connection you behave possibly in a more relaxed way, which then, and a confident way, which then has a feedback loop that the other person senses that, whether it's conscious or unconscious, which then plays in the placebo effect, it plays into the Pygmalion, da, 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 and you know the stuff. Um, I think the other thing as well is that there the are... Viewers and listeners... 
probably don't, though. So these are things oh. we'll cover in future sessions. <laughs> okay, yeah. we're going to get fancy, aren't we? See, we're yeah. using terms now. Um, but one of the things that's really helped me, actually, with this is that I, broadly speaking, I need boxes to help my head um, navigate, like heuristics, shortcuts, models that help me navigate the world. Um, so when it comes to scientific research and people are using fancy words that, that I sometimes don't understand. It takes me a while to understand it. You think, oh yeah, I've got it now. I think there's three three broad classes of people. You've got the uh, the inventors, the you know the academics, the thinkers that are inventing and researching and coming up with all sorts of useful models and testing the the scientific hypotheses, etc. So you've got the inventors, then you've got the interpreters, and then you've got the applicators. And most people, in my experience, want application. Actually, how can we do stuff? But the distance that we need to travel between the, the academic and the, in, uh, and the inventors to application is quite a long way because there's, there's a lot of words that need to be used. There's a lot of definitions. And then, So in the middle, you get the interpreters. And the interpreters are people who can, I understand enough about the inventors and their language and their theories and all the science, but I also have a felt and experiential understanding of what it means to, gosh, I just want to do something good. I want to help somebody move from A to B. I want to influence, persuade, reassess, influence, whatever in any contacts with human beings, <laughs> mainly human beings, unless we're going for UFOs. Um, but we want to do that stuff. But but we need that clump of people in the middle who can straddle both worlds. And I wouldn't say I am the best at it, but certainly I have this interesting relationship between I kind of begin to understand the interpreter, the um, the inventors, the scientific language, because I know it's going to give me confidence and I can use some fancy words in context to in amplify authority in oh, Robert uh, Cialdini's influence and persuasion stuff there. But actually being an interpreter is a very powerful place to be because we can bridge we can bridge a divide, which then we can boil down that fancy language into terminology that people like me and understand and maybe lots of other people would understand who are actually really interested in doing application. But they also want to know that is the application, has it got a basis that works? Well, people, I would suggest you're like this as well, Alex, that you're able to um, interpret the language of the fancy ones into everyday spiel that works. And uh, you probably do it a bit more cheekily than I do, for sure. <laughs> probably more swear words, but hey. <laughs> I think so. Um, and if we draw a back slightly, you just said, to me, you don't think you're necessarily the best at doing the interpretation. Well, I'd probably disagree because we've before we even got to the point <laughs> of... Um, starting this journey on putting this interpersonal neurosynchrony uh, package together, we'd already talked a fair bit on many things and very much so calling a spade a spade and and the way that I believe that viewers and listeners will really get what could seem overly complicated yeah, yeah. from an outsider's point of view, yeah. Subjects like nonverbal communication, micro expressions, mm. nonverbal signals, all the different offshoots of rapport. Now, the important thing is, as I always say, there's 
from a hypnosis perspective, I always say there's shed loads, tens of thousands of trainers out there, but I blatantly go out and say nobody teaches the way I do. And I give this money back guarantee that others don't have the balls to because I cut the shit out. Now, we're going to do that, you in particular, with interpersonal neural synchrony. Because you have been there, worn the T-shirt and worn it out in numerous different environments, which is the mm. most important thing, because your inventors might come up with great ideas, but they rarely, if ever, test them out in the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have tested what we're going to share with people within the course um, in numerous different environments. So let's dig a little bit into the world <laughs> of Paul Gutteridge, how he got to where he is now um and thankfully is where he is now alive and well which will become clear to the viewers and listeners <laughs> in a moment no doubt why that is something that's significant what was your journey to where we are now Paul? oh well you know uh so the the end result was that i ended up um I ended up doing what they call track two diplomacy which is talking to people of interest to the state whatever state that was bringing people together for conversations who may or may not be able to get to people so what led me up to a world where i was partly operating in business and then operating a lot in a some people would think it's a secret world and you know don't think i'm 007 or anything like that um but what led me there was interesting actually so i my journey i was born and brought up in a fairly roughish environment uh, dad, former special forces, mercenary, all that jazz. I was a little guy, I'm sure, five foot six or one meter sixty something for those of a, more of a, a European persuasion. But I was always a little guy on the estate who was all the big boys and girls and trying to, and I quickly had to learn how to talk and navigate my way through situations, saw a fair amount of trauma. And the reason why that's important is because people who begin to get good at body language, non-verbal influence, persuasion, rapport, neurosynchronicity, uh, synchrony, all that kind of jazz, they will either have had um, trauma that they've overcome, they will either have um, worked out how to be quite deviant in order to navigate situations, or just had an interest that got trained, but I was the trauma one. And um, I just literally I... jump in, I, do you mean people who naturally become good at it? Because it's my understanding from our conversations that if people take the no bullshit route to learning these techniques that we're ultimately going to share with them in future sessions, that anyone to a certain degree can learn to use these things well. I think yeah. to clarify, yeah. you mean you were naturally finding you could do these things. Yeah, naturally. And then you get the training, you can codify it. And the truth is, I mean, we're going to get onto this. As you say, there is so much to learn and has been backed up by the fancy, you know, the inventors with the science. There's loads of stuff there. There's a load of stuff that's out there that's not, by the way, I wouldn't trust it. Um, but some of the stuff that's really backed up in the science, the truth is under high stakes, high stress situations, we forget most of it. And that's where the science comes in. That's where our amygdala hijacks our prefrontal cortex and does all sorts of things with sympathetic and parasympathetic systems and what that means. So we need to be finding what's the fastest, quickest, easiest things to do, which have the highest rate of return, um, you know, I have a phrase, big doors swing on small hinges. So if you've only can hold five bits of information and working memory, give or take two, 
you're using most of your working memory to think, what am I going to do? I've got this really difficult client or I'm talking to this person. In a, I'm in a basement and somebody's got a ski mask on and there's a gun and a knife. You know, that's the other extreme. Or I'm with somebody who's a whistleblower from a state actor and I'm being followed and I've got to try and build rapport and navigate. I tell you what, as good as I think I am, I'm forgetting most of my skills. So I need to know only one or two that have the highest hit rate that are going to get me returns. And that's the cut through the crap stuff that I enjoy and you're a master at. Um, but so my journey, I was, so I was born, up, born and brought up in that environment. And one thing led to another. And I, I, have, I had an experience of faith, you know, and I, I, became, I became a Christian. And I suppose some people be like, oh, my God, what are you talking about now? Don't um, panic, viewers or listeners. If you know my background, you know I have a thing <laughs> out called the Bible, God and hypnotism. And I point out that Jesus, if he ever did exist, or the multiple versions of him, were excellent hypnotists and street magicians, as I explained in that. And we've, we, we, we have talked about these things. Believe what you want. Just don't go hurting anyone. That's my view on it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, so let's cut all the dogma and all that kind of jazz. Out. It's just part of my story. And mm -hmm. um, But what was interesting in part of that story is that, A, I used to be um, accused by some, confused by others. I say, oh, you're a hypnotist. I've never even heard of hypnotism. Um, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I thought, well, I don't think hypnotism actually exists. I think that maybe, I don't know, I maybe I was thinking, well, hypnotism, the word hypnotism is a hypnotist is a label. So it's been observed in people who can communicate effectively to get people to focus so much on one thing at the expense of others that they take on new beliefs and practices. That was kind of my understanding at that stage, because that was effective communication whether you were in a church or motivational speaking or a CEO of a company or a politician or a media personality, it was the same. Um, and then in my journey, 7-7 seven, seven happened. Um, and leading up to that, I'd worked all over the world with working into some of the toughest parts of different continents, setting up projects and talking my way in and out of gang situations. And I just have this knack from my history of being able to read and assess and influence behavior or positive, not nefarious purposes. Although you can do it for that, by the way, and we all know it. Um, and woe betide anybody who says, oh no, you've got to have somebody's consent for them to actually bend to your techniques. <laughs> no, no, I've seen enough of the world, whether in high stakes or low stakes situations for people, myself included, to do things they didn't think they were ever gonna do. And um, why did I do that? Well, there's a whole load of reasons why I did. And probably a whole load of reasons why those people do that. I kind of know the levers. Um, and it's like electricity. You can either turn the lights on and bring light to the world or you can electrocute people. It just depends how you use the tools. Um, so anyway, I went through this journey. 7-7 seven, seven happened and I was asked to write, write in the media um, about terrorism. And I thought, actually, I don't really know enough about the ideological positions of those people. So I just started to reach out to different leaders, community activists, etc., who hold various views and opinions. And it was a very, it seemed very short, very fast route to me ending up on this path of being this interlocutor of being able to stand in the gap between people who hold various and varying opinions and actually bringing them together for conversations. 
And then one thing leads to another. I go for some training. It's like the movies. I get tapped on the shoulder, go to the US. I meet some people there. I'm trained for some folk in the Middle East. And I end up in this whole world, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a bit, on actually earthing the training into real world situations where you're trying to help people ethically move from A to B. And of course, the implications and the applications into business, into therapy, coaching, they're all the same. It's human interactions. It's communication. So my my light bulb moment, if you like, came in. There were people who were amazing at training and some people were good at doing. And I realized that the people that were good at doing were not using most of the training or they were using parts of the training. So some people would take different bits of the training. So maybe that's the reason why you need to train everybody and everything, because we were going to take different parts of it, depending on our proclivities. But I realized that there was, gosh, there were three ways of doing things. There was the right way, the wrong way, and the long way. And I thought, my God, there is a lot of long way approach to this, let alone the wrong way, but a lot of long way. And the long way was overly padded trainings um which maybe were important because it appealed to different people who are going to take different elements i've tried to be generous um but i thought there was a quicker way to do it so i started to codify what i was doing even during the time i was doing it into bite-sized chunks and i knew there was going to come a point where i could apply that into business and therapeutic settings and that was a transition point for me long answer gosh it wasn't actually um, as long <laughs> as, because um, I know I already have the foresight from our previous conversation. I think you've managed to put that together well. One thing I want to emphasize again is that your real world experience in business, <laughs> yeah, if something goes wrong, it might be the difference between making this much profit or this much profit. Or it might be in a, you know, in an interview situation, the difference between not getting the job or getting the job yeah um in the relationships dating arena could it can be the difference between yeah having to go on a second day or getting blown away or um getting to final base and getting laid that, that it applies <laughs> to all areas but most of these aren't going to potentially mm. get you killed yeah, yeah you've yeah. actually been in environments where the grace of God, excuse the phrase. Oh no, I'm there, happy have been, there have been <laughs> there have been nasty people around. Or not necessarily they wouldn't perhaps perceive themselves as nasty because they they have their own yeah, agenda yeah, yeah. and aims and motivations. But if they took umbrage at anything you were saying or realized what you were trying to do, hmm. influence and persuasion could quite easily have turned into um <laughs> well. Physical violence, perhaps, yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, being at the bottom of somewhere with uh, concrete around me. Yeah, and I think, you know, as I say, there, there are loads of techniques, that, that loads of techniques, you know, how do you read micro-expressions, how do you see blood pressure changes, how do you use linguistic patter in order to bypass critical faculty, align around values, using body language techniques, all that jazz. One of the things I think that has been one of the most powerful is ego suspension. Um, and that ego suspension combined with appealing to somebody's values, and there are ways to do it, actually has been a lifesaver for me. 
And it's that sense of, can I suspend my judgment enough to genuinely, whether I'm pretending to do it or not, I don't know in the height of the situation, or maybe there is a bit of acting in there, of course there is. Can I suspend my judgment and ego enough to connect with that other person in a non-judgmental way, neurosynchrony? for argument's sake and what is taking place what my what little signals am i sending out what tonality what intention for those people who are more into think you know thinking about quantum entanglement etc and does that explain these things and there's some research on that and the work of people at the heart math institute and etc looking at all these areas actually does my intention actually get in an unconscious way felt by the person sitting in the back of a van in the, you know, uh, an Eastern European country when they are an enforcer for a people trafficker. I mean, that was quite scary, you know. And that, yeah, that was quite scary. And uh, I thought, I'm not getting out of this one if he decides he doesn't like me. But actually, that sense of ego suspension and genuine intention to to really listen to somebody actually two ears and one mouth i'm not doing it i'm on broadcast now but two ears and one mouth you listen twice as hard as you talk um and twice as long and those little things have a disproportionate impact and even in coaching and therapy that ego suspension and, and allowing the silence to do the heavy lifting and the intention to be felt has a i believe anyway a disproportionately positive impact and then appealing to values as well what do if you're bringing two people together who are clashing and that they people like robert diltz did this years ago researching you know hierarchy and you know it's, it's maslov on speed isn't it you know this this values this identity this purpose well, thing right at the, it's maslov's right at the hierarchy of needs repackaged so you can sell another course <laughs> yeah. um... check you out <laughs> um <laughs> i can see out of this conversation i'm going to be there oh no paul's always generous thinking the best of people and i'm sure they didn't do it for those reasons bad, bad cop good cop <laughs> whichever side he appears on the video yeah that's right but i think i think it's good to have the poking and the provoking though actually that you bring because it it forces it forces forces people like me it forces all sorts of people to actually think about what they think about question what they you know ask a better question what is the the purpose what you know and you can cut through but i think that the the hierarchy around sort of beliefs and values and identity to if if one can get a if you're in a tense situation if one can help somebody see or come to an agreement on not the environmental friction between i want this you want that but actually say what what what's the what values do we hold as as individuals in this situation and try to find some sort of alignment now my limited understanding of therapy would suggest that's pretty that's a bit like parts therapy when i've listened to people talk about parts therapy it's actually what does that give you what does that give you and you you go up through the hierarchy and you find the common place and one collapses the other and you come into a place of agreement i suppose it's the diplomatic version of that a couple of observations and a question. So the observations, I've, by the way, viewers, um, if you see my hand moving, it's because I've got a pen and I just make little notes so I don't forget. Um, my observations on what you just said. There's the old saying that people 
like people who are like them. Yeah, that yeah. Common yeah. interest. Now, in reality, yeah. I found that whilst there is an element of truth to that, a more truer and useful phrase to remember is that people tend to like people who like them, mm-hmm. who are giving, uh, whether it's non-verbally or verbally, expressing yeah. the fact that they find the person in front of them interesting. And that, whether they've got common ground or not, doesn't matter as much as the person you're trying to influence or persuade feeling wanted, liked, appreciated, yeah. Yeah. cared for, valued, what, what depending on on the context that's one observation the other is you mentioned energy and quantum stuff well i always <laughs> just think of the times everyone must have experienced it walking into a bar or a nightclub or a restaurant or some other environment and just walking in and, uh, and suddenly knowing you could cut mm. the atmosphere with a knife that's a phrase yeah, yeah. yeah, you yeah. cut the atmosphere with a knife and you just know got to get out of here or a fight's going to kick off and invariably it does. How did you know you hadn't been in that? You you felt it. You felt the energy. So without being winky wanky, arty farty, new age, we will <laughs> we will talk in a non tree hugging manner about <laughs> the real world yeah, uh, yeah, observations yeah. and uses of energy in in these sessions. Um, you mentioned two ears, one mouth listen twice as much as you talk, which reminds me of the founder of the Samaritans, Chad Vera, Mm. whose famous phrase was, in terms of therapy and counselling, was don't just do something, sit and listen. (laughs) In other words, the listening part, the making the person feel special, valued, appreciated, worthwhile, is arguably as although Chad would say, and I would argue, more important than actually doing some wonderful therapeutic technique or in a negotiation doing some wonderful persuasion technique because that process of listening in Mm. itself makes the individual in front of you feel better but also makes them in a Chialdini's Persuasion (laughs) and Influence book manner... um, probably at an unconscious level, but makes them feel that they owe you something. Yeah, it's reciprocity. And, you know, there's there's another saying, and I use it quite a lot, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it's it's so true. Uh, In my experience, it's been been true. If there's that genuine care, um, then people can sense it and feel it. And, oh, gosh, that sounds abstract. How do you do that, you know, for people who are into modelling, NLP, uh, general semantics, uh, whatever the flavour is? um, Well, what's the structure of that? Well, that's kind of what I've done in terms of, well, what's the structure of caring in therapy, coaching, high stakes negotiations, sitting in the back of a van with somebody. What are the things that we actually do think, say, observe in somebody else? What's the structure of it? Um, and that's basically what you what I've broken down, and maybe what we're going to explore further as well, is well, what what do you actually do then? Can we model this if you're an NLP? Or can we 
can we develop a system if you're, uh, you know, uh, organizational dynamics and systems or whatever, or actually, is there something that can help us in our therapy so that we can, at the end of the day, get to the heart of the matter quickly with speed and specificity. Those are the two things I'm really interested in. Business happens at the speed of trust. It's about liking. You know, and the reason why that works is because, oh, here's the science bit. It's the mirror neurons. You know, we like people who are who are like us and who like us. So there's the element of actually mirroring the, the liking, the reciprocity and the liking or that likability factor, that trust factor. Well, how do you amplify trust or and what's a what 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 shrinks trust down, what breaks trust? Well, actually, loads of research by anthropologists, people like Gerd Hofstetter, uh, the Lewis model. There's all these models out there by these clever inventor people that actually say, this is why that is happening. So then you can have confidence that when you go and do this, it's going to more likely happen than not happen. And I'm interested in the stuff that gives you the highest return for your investment in the shortest period of time, because I know and I was quite good at it. I can codify lots of information quickly across multiple channels, whether it's face, voice, tone, linguistic, use of pronouns, Dr. James Pennebecker's work, etc. I could do it quickly. But even if I could do it quickly, the higher the stakes or if I was nervous, a new client, if I was in a new situation, I'd forget. I'd forget so much of it. And so what was going to be memorable that I could practice that was going to work? And I suppose that's been my overriding motivation with this stuff is how do you break it down to the components that can be used day in day out week in week out with people and because we've got all sorts of things going on in our brains we've got both implicit memory and explicit memory and how the amygdala how the thalamus takes in the information and then talks to the amygdala and triggers things at 0.25 milliseconds as opposed to the prefrontal cortex in 0.5 of a se- 0.50 seconds so it's going to the hijack center of our body quicker than it is going to the higher reasoning center of our body and how do we slow things down and the key phrase is if you want to get good at this stuff it's slowing your internal mechanisms down and actually thinking ahead of time what's the outcome i'm after here how do i slow myself down so that i'm in tune not just with myself but i'm in tune with the other person and trusting that all the stuff you've learned and all the experience you've had will actually serve you at the right time because the brain is extraordinary if we can regulate. And if you're in a therapeutic situation, we're teaching people to co-regulate. If we can regulate our internal stress levels, then we can we can bring out all this good stuff. Um, so we can get into all that. It's fascinating. Which, which which we will in the actual uh, training. We should just give people a, a flavour of, of, of the kind of areas that will be covered and learned. And it, it, it's pr- pretty much adaptable to any area of life. The one thing that I noted, I bought a note about what you said before and forgot to mention was the actual question. I may mention my observations, but my question was, you talked about people's values mm. and how understanding them finding them out and i'm going to use the term using them using that information is a key to persuasion and influence but in my experience not everybody there's always exceptions to every rule always 
However, in my experience, the majority of people think they know what their core values are. If you ask them and they consciously think, they think about it and they'll say, oh, these are my core values. But in actual fact, in my experience, those are not actually their true core values. Mm. They have to dig deeper and deeper. The true core values tend to be stored, I'm saying metaphorically, in the unconscious, subconscious mind, the personal laptop computer. And you do have to, I found, get critical faculty analytical area or some call it the executive function bypass for the real values to come out, which can often be very surprising to the individual that that is their real core values because often some of them can seem at first sight or realisation so far removed from what they thought their real values were. Can you put that across in your terms, what you make of... Yeah, no, but that's that's very powerful because in the in the cut and thrust of life, um, so, I mean, we, we can apply it into a number of different areas. So, say, say, for example, you're doing high-performance coaching. So, I get asked to do quite a lot of that. Um, and these are people who are super successful. If you measure success by, I earn this amount of dollars or pains, um, I've got these houses and all that kind of stuff. It still doesn't mean that people are going to hit some sort of existential crisis of what's the point? What's the use? Or they are seeking to navigate a particular decision, whoever that they are, whether it's therapeutically or in a coaching situation. Um, the values are interesting because we can start off by saying, so what's important to you about X, Y and Z? And of course, people will answer in a certain order as mainly from the top of their heads, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this is important. That's important. That's important. Now, for those people that have studied stuff like forensic statement analysis, the Undeutsch hypothesis is my fancy stuff over here, which is basically what is used by um, security services when they're interrogating text to see where areas of sensitivity are, deception, detection, credibility analysis. And I did all the training in that world. You're taught to look for the order and see where the keywords, phrases and values are. Um, But in my experience, and I think you're alluding to this, is that, well, being overt about this, is that what comes out first isn't really the real stuff. There's something much deeper. and there's a way to elicit that if you want to use a fancy word. There's a way to draw that out of people in a way that is non-threatening. Um, and, and in my experience, say for example, not just in a, a coaching setting, but I just a- say, not just non-threatening. I know from our previous talks and from experience that there's ways of doing that without the person even being consciously aware that you've drawn it out of them. Yeah, yeah, very much. And and Oh gosh, there's, Alex, there's so, so much stuff here around how you 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 stop amygdala spikes taking place in people using well, your language. You could mention things briefly by all means, but in this episode, <laughs> I think it's just an overview of what that that could be an entire lesson in itself down the line. Who knows? <laughs> oh, it's so powerful, so powerful. There's a book written by a guy called John Nolan. It's had a print made called Confidential, and it's he's a former American spook, and it's about corporate espionage and and all the techniques. And I remember I was working for a, an organisation and and eliciting getting information out of people in bars in airports before they got on the plane. Um, to see if they were uh, taking contraband from one country. Oh. <laughs> it was great fun using all these techniques of 
primacy and recency and how not to spike people on the way through. But it's supremely useful. And all we're doing is we're suspending our ego. And we are, you know, let's, let's be blunt about the raw recipe of these things. Is We're basically asking somebody, hey, so what's so important to you about X, Y, and Z, general chit-chat? And they'll say, oh, it's this, it's this, it's this. And basically, we're asking, I suppose, from a therapeutic point of view, we're looking to get people to drop down. You know, okay, the next level. So what does that give to you? That would be a classic phrase that people would use in the coaching or NLP or therapeutic world. So, you know, oh, you say that family's important. What does that do for you? That's basically the raw ingredients, and we can ask it in different ways. Oh, that's really interesting. So oh, tell me a bit more, or we wait for that. They just told us a value that's really important, and it's often loaded with emotion. And we wait for a little bit of time, and it's called the affect curve, waiting for that to go down. And then we say, ah, you know, Alex, it's really interesting. You know, we were chatting earlier on about X, Y, and Z. I just wonder, because circle back, you could tell me a little bit more about X, whatever X is, that value, love. And, of course, the, the affect has gone down. They don't feel I'm interrogating them. I'm circling back. I can use some patter for argument's sake. Is, yeah, I wonder if you'd be so kind as to tell me a bit more about X, Y, and Z. And that whole phrase, I wonder if you to be so kind, is is very simple, but a very clever bit of patter, which is, I wonder if you could be so kind. Um, so we're using the rule of reciprocity in the social norms of kindness and graciousness, etc. But what I'm doing is I'm keeping the power with you. I'm not saying, look, I want you to tell me a load more because I want to probe into your life. You're saying, I wonder if you can help me. And people like helping other people in when they're in a conversation. And then you get more information. I'm just going to do that, check whether it's my earphones or microphone your end, but a slight tiny bit of distortion then. Same might on. I didn't have say No, I'm still getting a bit of distortion. No. I don't know what that would be. Oh, it isn't now. Oh, there you go. I've switched to the right. <laughs> oh, it's crystal clear. Again, I've put it. I've put a different a different headset. Um. So yeah, we're we're asking those drop down questions, and and actually, the, things slow down in people when they when they go inside and start to pull up deeper values, and they are the things that truly motivate. And of course, we're on dodgy territory potentially if it's high stakes situation. I, I remember I was in. Um, I, I was a long way away in another country in a bar. A lot of stuff happens in bars. And um, I was talking to a particular guy and he was sharing stuff and he was a person of interest. And we were just sort of chatting away and he was sharing stuff. And when we use elicitation strategies, and elicitation isn't just about asking somebody an open question. It's also elicitation works when we, A, make statements you know, well, I see the weather's nice today. Leave a gap. We're not actually asking a question. We're making a statement. Oh, I see the weather's nice today. Um, and we leave a gap and people want to fill the space. So they start to share information. Or we can use what people like um, Jack Schaefer, who used to run the behavioral analysis unit at Quantico for the FBI. He's, now, he's written some great books. Um, he would talk about last three words. So basically you're taking the last three words or a theme of the end of a paragraph or a sentence that somebody said and you're just repeating it back really quickly and leaving a gap and people will start to give you more information 
once people start giving us more information and they start to drop down, of course, the deeper the value, there's a greater emotional or somatic response to that. It's visceral. We feel it within ourselves. And that's why we're so suggestible. Um, and that's why we've got to be really careful because we're beginning to somebody's beginning to peak because that value can bring up all sorts of implicit and explicit memories. And I, I suppose from a therapeutic point of view, it could create an ab reaction if it's attached to something else because that value is being cut across because they've been abused or whatever. So we've got to navigate quite carefully when people are sharing more and more information. And in that particular situation I was in, a guy was sharing loads with me and suddenly realized that he'd shared too much. And I oh, know yeah, he threatened to kill me. Um, and we, we went outside. There was a couple of the other people with him. And I had to talk my way out of the situation. And I thought, Paul, be really, really careful. Because to your point, Alex, people don't always know what their deepest values are. And they may be connected to both positive and negative experiences. And unfortunately for me, his deeper value around X was connected to a situation where he'd been abused. So that core value being cut across so violently that it created a violent reaction in him, which I was the object of his attention because I was the one drawing it out of him. So once your amygdala is hijacked, all the chemicals dump into the body, you go freeze, fight, flight, or fawn. He went fight. And I was a person in front. Um, so I learned a valuable lesson about how much you draw out of somebody in a situation. But it's almost irresistible when somebody knows how to do it and they do it well. Excellent. So I have a few more questions before we bring our first recorded meeting to a close. <laughs> Um, which I do feel now for the record, and no, none of this will be edited out. Things are never edited out of these things. And I do that on purpose because often in the moments of um, brain fart or unmet pauses, <laughs> gold can occur that wasn't pre-planned. Um, so, you know, I, I say that, to viewers and listeners, genuinely, over the episodes that will be put together as a step-by-step -step training course in interpersonal neurosynchrony, or if you prefer, high-level rapport, or <laughs> if you want to just think of it as the total cutting edge of non-verbal <laughs> and verbal, both non-verbal and verbal communication, persuasion, and influence, call it what you will. Ultimately, we are going to discuss demonstrate, give examples of things that genuinely work in the real world, things that I yeah, found yeah. work in therapy, things that Paul, depending on which side the video chooses to put him, has found work in the most extreme of situations, which I'm sure most of you will never be encountering. But hey, some of you may well work in those sorts of arenas or may do in the future. The point being, if these techniques used correctly can stop you from getting killed, then imagine how easily they can be used to help somebody overcome a habit, addiction, fear, or phobia, or higher-end issues um, like post-traumatic stress disorder, 
complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is where my next question is, because I know that you've kind of withdrawn now from the non-state diplomat um, track to diplomacy world um, with all its dangers and are moving more, although you're already involved in it, but more into um, what some would call the therapy world, some would call the coaching yeah, yeah. world, some would call mentoring, consulting. They're all just bloody titles and ways of marketing yourself. Right? <laughs> yes. to, help, to help somebody get from one position to another, whether that's overcoming a habit, addiction, fear, phobia, saying goodbye to a stress, a tension, a worry, a fear, an anxiety, a trauma that's mm. locking them in position, mm. or a mm. business block where they need to look at things differently. 100%. The underlying principles and tools are arguably the same, aren't they, Paul? Yeah, they are. And I think when it comes to the reason why I've, the reason why I'm more formally operating in the sort of the therapeutic end of things is simple. Actually, A, I've been exposed to a lot of things that created intrusive thoughts, disturbed sleep, all that kind of stuff. And that's trauma, PTSD stuff, hypervigilance, hypersensitivity, all the stuff that I've used as a USB to be able to read, assess and influence behavior quickly. But it burns through cortisol like nobody's business and fried my pituitary gland, probably. Um, but in all seriousness, I've in that world come across and and continue to come up so many people who have been traumatized you know former soldiers special forces people involved with covert operations law enforcement but you know what that is the same in business as well and the same in life in general um and there's all sorts of things around that but i've i come to realize that there are there are two elements so a lot of the stuff in the uh, body language linguistic rapport elicitation is using words Words and body language, bang, bang, bang. You're doing different things, and we'll cover those. And incredibly powerful things to affect positive change or move through situations, take people from A to B. But when it comes to the trauma side of things, it goes beyond the what we would call top-down approach of a cognitive approach. It's bottom-up. It's somatic. It's felt. It's held in the body. It's held as images and representations in the mind, which trigger all sorts of chemical reactions, and I think that actually bringing those two together of saying actually dealing with the the somatic felt subconscious stuff that drives our those horrible thoughts and feelings and painful things. Actually, that's step one. Actually, the, the next step is then how do we then live? How do we grow? How do we go from there with a sense of meaning and purpose? And that's really what I'm interested in is a identifying where are people stuck and struggling? I've been there myself. I know what it feels like. It's awful. It can be big or small. It doesn't matter. It's just awful. We could, it could be triggered by something small or significant. How do we overcome that? And then actually, what's the next stage? How do we grow? How do we live from here? And that's where the meaning-centered therapeutic approaches that I'm particularly interested in come into play and all the other body language stuff to help people on that journey. Um, so that that's my kind of... my. I, I'm formally doing it as opposed to I was informally doing it before. And uh, now I'm away from a certain world means that I can have, a, I don't have to be looking over my shoulder. So. Yeah. I'm not doing this from the sales ploy of making everyone watching or listening think, wow, 
we really need to find out more about this course right now and secure it while there is the introductory special offer discount. Um, or at least that's not my main motive for, for, for bringing this up. <laughs> Although it will likely entice <laughs> some people. One, we've covered how this stuff can be used in all different areas of life, but in particular, mm. let's talk about post-traumatic stress disorder a little more, or complex post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder, yeah. whatever label you want to give it. A lot of therapists are led to believe this is something that will take hours and hours and hours and hours and multiple sessions in mm. order to enable somebody to totally overcome that block or release all that uh negative anchors and emotions that keep um surfacing or they keep replaying or different experiences yeah. for different people yeah and yet i know from my own personal experience that in a lot and i'm saying in a lot not all by any means and i'm not saying in the majority either but i'm saying in a lot of cases it is possible to get truly life-changing um, results in a single session. Now, uh -huh. Uh -huh. some viewers or listeners might be going, well, yeah, if your session's five hours, say, uh, <laughs> get one then session, that's yeah. like having had five sessions. No, what I mean is <laughs> it may be a conventional 60 to 90-minute session, albeit mm -hmm. that in truth, a lot of that wouldn't have been therapeutic work anyway. It would have been rapport getting or talking or whatever yeah the actual yeah. process that leads to the release i'll say mm -hmm. and that massive change and offloading positively can often happen in a matter of five ten minutes sometimes mm -hmm. uh albeit that it actually is happening in a split second with the culmination of seeds planted over the five, yeah. 10, 15 minutes or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I know recently we spoke about you had such a, a recent mm. experience of this, didn't you? Yeah, and, and I think what, what's interesting is that, so let's, I mean, I'm going to take one step back and then we'll okay. sort of zoom in on that specifically. And I think when it comes to trauma, um, and trauma can happen because, and it's not because we're weak people, it's just a certain particular frame of mind we're in a particular context we can we people can get traumatized and live with stuff from what we would look at and think but the, what, why would that bother you um and and then you went through that and it didn't bother you why would that small thing that's a whole nother conversation but it happens and i think that when people think about trauma and you know how quickly does it take to get over it they conflate two things number one the actual net horrible feelings the hypervigilance the intrusive thoughts the dreams and living a wonderful full empowered life i think they're two different things so when people think about getting over trauma they think that they're both the same thing it's the painful stuff and then living in a really whole manner actually i think that the trauma is the one thing and then how do we then learn how to live is the next thing that happens because if you were when it comes to the trauma so i was working with a guy he's a um be careful what i say he is a um military guy and been involved with and they like to say this the theater of conflict but some horrific things for years and years and years and basically this particular individual had intrusive thoughts um that he kept in inside himself which had affected his behaviors negatively his relationships negatively 
for about 20 years. And so we were working together and I approached the trauma in terms of the feeling. What do you want? I want to not feel like this. I do not want these thoughts going on in my head. So we used some techniques over a period of an hour. That was the session over an hour. Um, and they're, they're techniques that are now being very well researched. You know, if you look at the research on EMDR, eye movement, desensitizing, I've forgotten the brain fog now. Ah, EMDR, um, eye movement, desensitizing, reprogramming. That's the one. As, as I like to call it, the finger waggling bollocks. Because whilst there is research saying it gets results, it does. But what it doesn't take into account is the fact that research doesn't look at the fact that the real result is achieved through um, the therapist expressing their intent. It's going to work, their belief through the Pygmalion Rosenthal effect. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. The yeah. client picking up on that and therefore kicking in the Galatea effect that they then believe it will work. The fact that the Hawthorne effect of follow up and checking how the client's getting on is in there. The fact that the importance that's put on it in the testing environment uh, helps trigger off the placebo trigger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which then when they get the outcome is the placebo effect. All of these things and many others that we'll talk about are actually why EMDR works when it works, not because you've wiggled the eyes in a certain See, manner. that's why you're controversial, and I love it, because you're poking and provoking the very assumptions behind behind how people are doing research on this, because it appears to be from the research. It's impossible to do research into any psychological talking therapist, persuasion or influence without... The Pygmalion effect, Galatea effect, yeah, Hawthorne yeah. effects, yeah. placebo effect, nocebo effect, and a whole bunch of other things that we will go into. Being present, it's impossible to eliminate them because it, in a manner where the testing would be legal and allowable and acceptable mm. and publishable, um, because by virtue of doing the testing, the tester has a preconceived idea, or even if they don't, they have a, a belief in the importance of it, and it, so the cycle begins. See, that's that's very interesting because I mean, I I know I, you know I'm, I'm aware of this stuff. I know this stuff, and and I've I've pondered this because it's impossible, therefore, to untangle what's what in the midst of it. And I think the best thing is to just be honest and say, look, all those rapport based things are happening, and that's why this rapport stuff and how you break that down for me is the key all the other techniques and stuff are all the other techniques and you know if you use them with 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 a good intention and da, 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 it's positive um so we can get into all of that but with this with this particular person we did whatever we did and it was more somatic it wasn't using your brain in terms of talking therapy so it wasn't a cbt approach to deal with that thing and the reframing it was a it was an experience using a somatic what's the fancy word modality or therapy or whatever using a somatic thing a brain based therapy whether it's emdr um eye movement integration which came out of bandler and grinder which actually yeah emdr was influenced by that and then brain spotting you've got all these various brain which bandler bandler and grinders eye movement stuff it again is both bollocks and true if you take it literally the way bandler and grun uh bundler and grinder taught it, so bandler and, uh, grinder <laughs> that's an app isn't it <laughs> taught it uh yeah well um 
the idea is that everyone, the direction of the rides means certain things, the way they go. And the fact is, in the real world, that isn't true. No. Nah, nah. You have to actually, the principle is true that once you understand what direction the person in front of you's eyes move when reconstructing memories or mm. constructing a lie or feeling and all that, once you know what is correct, accurate, specific, bespoke to them, or you've calibrated it, is the fancy term would be in NLP, oh, wow. to find out what is their directions. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you will find a lot of people fit the textbook, but not anyone, not everyone by all, uh, any means. In fact, a lot of people don't, and you have to calibrate them, don't you? Yeah, you do. And I think, so what, one of the things that was interesting for me is dealing with the uh, dealing with the intrusive emotions, actually, as you say, it's actually relatively quick, actually. And the research as well suggests that it can be quick, even, you know, regardless of what other effects are taking place, certainly with things like EMDR and those eye movement therapies is the average of three to six sessions is eliminating the the initial traumatic experience and all the other associated things. I mean, compared to talking therapies, it's like night and day. However, the question that I was getting from people when they were saying, oh, I feel better, was what's next? And I think it's the what next bit takes time in terms of, okay, who are you? How are you? How are you wired? What do you want? When do you want it? It's the building of a life after that that has been for many people shattered by trauma. And actually, that's the bit that takes the time because it does take time to maybe say, well, what are my values? What do I really want? What are the things that I might need to put in place now that I am free or freer from all of that? Because I've damaged or wounded all sorts of things in the process, myself included, you know, for example, not for me, I'm talking about myself, but in a therapeutic context, I have damaged myself. I have damaged relationships. I have gone into a career that I didn't really want to go into because it was informed so much by this hypervigilance, hyperactivity. Actually, there's things about me that I want to rediscover. Now, whether you want to get into human psychodynamics or whatever, I don't know. But I think that that's the bit that takes the time or can take the time, longer time. And people put those two together and say, actually, you've got PTSD. There's no way you can get better after one session or three sessions. Well, actually, a bit of that gets dealt with there. But actually, the length of time is in the journey from A to B um, and actually helping and accompanying somebody along the process. Um, and actually, one therapist may be good for one element and they need to go to somebody else for another element. And there's there's that as well. It doesn't have to be one size fits all with one therapist. And a large part of that, in my, in my terms, um is that you need to help the individual to let go of any self-blame, mm. shame, guilt, mm. regret that they may have been carrying around uh, and anger as well, maybe, um, or may suddenly manifest. Yeah. So the kind of traumas dealt with but then the self-blame, shame, guilt, regret and anger could surface of why the fuck wasn't I able to deal with this sooner? Why have I lost Absolutely. all these months and years of my life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is so, John, that's 
so common. People I talk to, particularly ex-military or survivors of whatever trauma or catastrophe, their mate is blown up next to them and they're not. They managed to escape when they didn't. Survivor's guilt. And it's, it is rife. And the that blame, shame, guilt, etc. that you talk about is exactly it. Um, and it's helping it's helping people navigate that and and again i, I want to emphasize again this the ability to create a high trust relationship with somebody in a therapeutic context uh, a coaching context a business deal context um due diligence i get asked to sit in due diligence meetings and pick the right people for the right thing for a big deal or or whether it is uh, around cultivating a friendship with somebody who's at interest of the state, at the end of the day, we have to be, it's about intention. And people can, I don't know how it works, although they're beginning to do more and more research with fMRI scanning and and um, electromagnetic fields, testing around you know people when they think about certain things. But it's about this sense of connection rapport trust if we can if we can put that in a bottle and this is what i try to do how do we put that into a bottle how do we distill that red source reduction to something that's really rich that actually we can just use that's that's if there is any magic it's that in my experience i'm sure there's other people who disagree but it's that well, I, thing I, right I would there. argue that we are going to bottle that magic sauce as it were <laughs> great into the interpersonal neurosynchrony uh, <laughs> training package um so t- just before we end we end up this sort of taster uh into thing mentioned energy again again without wishing to be arty farty winky wanky tree hugging new agey <laughs> sounding yes. some energetic stuff is just bollocks to rip people off but some of it as a basis and a couple of things that i find interesting one is somatics um mm-hmm. i think i've said that right i i may have had a brain fart cymatics cymatics it's the if you type it into youtube in fact you know what i'm just going to open a window as we speak and make sure that i've said the correct word um cymatics is a subset of modal vibrational phenomenon the term was coined by the swiss physician hans jenny typically the surface of a plate diaphragm Mm -hmm. or membrane is vibrated and regions of maximum and minimum displacement are made visible in a thing caught in a particles paste or liquid right or to put it another way, search cymatics, C-Y-M-A-T-I-C-S on YouTube, and you'll see how sounds yeah, yeah. have visual imagery. So different sounds, different vibrations will make, through vibrations, the particles on this plate that vibrates to the sounds of the music or whatever, form geometric shapes, and there's different geometric shapes for different sounds. Just like you get different shapes in snowflakes. So that's one thing worth looking at that demonstrates that sound waves. Yeah, yeah. Which is why quite often shouting, if, mm. if it's with an intent, can make people, oh, what's going on? Just talking calmly, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Different yeah. voice tones. 
yeah. have different effects. It, it's a similar thing. Another thing worth looking at is um, Emoto Water. Uh, Masaru Emoto. His first name is M A S A R U. Second name Emoto E M O T O. He's was a Japanese businessman, author, and is termed here on Wikipedia as pseudo scientist who claimed that human consciousness could affect the molecular structure of water. Okay, yes, now, I've read those studies. There's people who poo poo it, there's people who say it's true. If there's any truth in it, it was the idea that if you got water from the same source and uh, took it and this glass of it, we shouted it and we were really angry and then stuck it in a freezer. And the other, we said loving, nice things to them, put it in a different freezer. Yeah, yeah. That afterwards, when they were looked at under the microscope, the one that they had a totally different form. It was obvious to a blind man which had been focused with anger and nasty mm -hmm. thoughts as opposed to positive. Some say it's pseudoscience, but I would say it's another example of our energy and intent and may also, without wishing to be religious, Hello. be why <laughs> the process of saying grace or saying a prayer, um, you know, we, we're thankful for the food we are about to receive before eating the Sunday dinner because... Yeah. You don't know how that animal got murdered, so it could have had stress and negativity, which mm, some mm. studies would show make it more likely to cause disease. Um, whereas giving out this positive mm, intent, mm. some would argue, is changing the harmonics and the energy frequencies. Yeah, okay. Maybe okay, a little bit out there, but what's your thoughts mm. on that stuff? So uncharacteristically, I'm yeah. going to uh, move from my normal, I enjoy abstract and teaching and all the other things yeah. around it and say, practically, it cashes out like this, in my experience. If I go into whatever setting, it's a high stakes setting, regardless of what the context is, it might be high stakes because it's important to somebody else. It might be high stakes because I think I want to get out of here alive. I set my intention up before I go in how do I want to be? How do I want to come across? How much am I going to focus on them? What do I want them to see, feel, hear, come away with the outcome frame, all that kind of stuff? But NLP might refer to that, for example, as well-formed outcomes. The Ooh, old idea fancy. of you need to know where you're going, otherwise how do you know when you've got there and how do yeah. you know you need to form your signpost in advance to know what you're looking yeah. for so that you know when you need to change course, if at all to get to the destination yeah absolutely you're starting with the end in mind and working backwards however we want to phrase it my experience has been that when i have that well formed to use that nlp thing well form formed and not just well formed in terms of cognitively well formed oh well, i'm going to do this they're going to do this they're going to do this but actually visually emotionally where i get invested into it i perform better or it is perceived that I perform better. There are known things that are happening. You could break that down and say, right, this is what he's doing around with trust. This is what you're doing linguistically. These are the small tells you're spotting from somebody else, which you are 
reading as points of interest because there's an amygdala spike or there's a an arousal state and you're using that as a data point to come back to this is all the stuff we're going to cover because this is what we've broke been breaking down but there's also unknown things and i wonder if some of those unknown things that are yet we haven't got the devices to even measure it but instinctively we think mm, there's something going on here i wonder if that may explain that that pseudoscience becomes science because ah we have better ways of measuring it now and that's what's taking place it's a bit like um what do they call it now m brain theory three brain theory you've got a massive neural bundle in our head massive neural bundle in our heart massive neural bundle in our guts and with the three brains yeah. yeah three brains and, and, I wonder and if... which was alluded to for years, you know, they all saying, don't let your head rule your heart. And the reason is because yeah, research yeah. is showing there's more neural pathways going from the heart to the brain than there is mm. from the brain to the heart. And then in commonality of life, there was always the phrase, go with your gut, follow yeah, your gut yeah. instinct. And the clues have always been there. Head brain for logic uh, and thought and analysis. Heart, brain, free motions uh, and interactions and such. Gut brain for fight, flight, free shite. Um, <laughs> yeah. Stuff. <laughs> and feed. Um, so that I, and any yeah. other F you might think of. Yeah. Um, but I... But I mean, of course, guys like, I mean, say, for example, Gavin DeBecker, The Gift of Fear. It's a classic book on, you know, he's... Yeah, he's, he's interviewing people basically who have survived attacks and they are reporting that they had an instinct that something wasn't right and it was beyond rational top-down cognition so they thought but it was something visceral in them now it might be the amazing pattern matching ability of the implicit memory of when the thalamus communicates with the amygdala and then it goes and checks different parts of the brain to see if it's right and all that it may be that or it may be that and this ability for us as human beings to feel emotional changes in the environment we go into on the largest organ on our body which is the skin and whether the skin picks up something so there's all sorts of research out there which goes right back to the very beginning of why do we need these fancy words well, maybe we don't, but we certainly need people to do some research so that actually some of these instinctive things are like, oh, no. there's some there's some there's some research that bears this out. And notwithstanding all the stuff, you know, is it grey research? Is it pure research? Is it who's putting money behind it, etc. But notwithstanding all that stuff, actually, there are people researching this. And if it gives us as practitioners, as it goes through the interpreter person type to the application people as 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 practitioners it gives us more confidence to therefore serve other people as effectively as possible to help them move to a to b and and maybe you know with my i like thinking of the best for everybody in mind with the right intention we're not manipulating people negatively but we're taking all that great research maybe putting it into words that people like me can understand and actually saying oh do you know what i feel i can do this with a pure intention and with great confidence and if challenged and scrutinized you know this is what this is what the boffins are saying it's been tested and i can Actually, we can make the world a better place. Maybe that's my utopian idea of how to use this stuff. But, hey, I'm a bit of a dreamer anyway, so 
that's how I'm going to be. Nothing wrong with that. Um, <laughs> I've got, before I, I give you the floor to wrap up this, um, what has basically turned into, will be at some point, an episode of Hypnosis Week to announce the forthcoming launch of the Interpersonal Neurosynchronous Synchrony uh, video and audio and related worksheets um, training package, uh, which means that when you do actually get to watch or listen to this, viewers and listeners, please do us a favour to help spread the word, to help more people, to change more lives positively. Share this far and wide on your social medias. Click like, make a comment below. All of these things help the algorithms uh, to show this to more people. And of course, remember that below this video or below the speaker symbol on the audio podcast platform will be a link. And that link will take you to the page where you will be able to order the interpersonal neurosynchrony course because it will be ready when this gets released. We, you know, The sooner you go to that, the more affordable, better value for money and ridiculously cheap the introductory offer will be but it will run out sort of seven days after this goes live and then go back to a more realistic price that will still be immense. And I do mean immense value for money because of the life-changing potential of mastering these techniques, not just from the therapeutic or magician or mind tricksters perspective that I will share, but more importantly, I'm pointing with two fingers because we don't know which way the video ends up when it records, <laughs> from... Paul's uh, perspective of having used these therapeutically in business context and at the cutting edge, yeah. high-end level that could get you bloody killed. Because I always were, if something will work in the more stressful, dangerous of environments, yeah. it's just going to become even easier for you to use in environments that the only thing can be a positive outcome. So with all that in mind, we mentioned research, and this is what triggered this off in my head. There is research, and along the way, we will go into that a bit, but into layman's terms uh, and stuff. And if you choose to then go off and learn more of the winky-wanky terms, fine. <laughs> but, but there won't be any need to, because between myself and Paul, we will have translated it into layman's terms so that most importantly, you can understand it to the level to get out there and actually start practically applying these techniques yeah. in business, in your personal life, in the dating arena, if you're a salesperson to get more sales, if you're a therapist to help your clients reach their resolutions more rapidly, safely, and effectively. If you're negotiating contracts to get a better outcome for everyone involved on a win-win level more rapidly mm. and harmoniously. You, you name it, every area of life can improve with the techniques that Paul and myself will be sharing. Paul in particular, I'll just be giving my little thoughts and prodding the uh, <laughs> wasp, wasp's nest, so to speak. Uh, so to end this one, I'm going to prod the wasp's nest one yes, more time. Yes. <laughs> and mention this, that post-war, um, Joseph Mengel, who, who uh, was responsible for many atrocities in Nazi Germany, was smuggled out of Germany by the CIA into America. That is not a conspiracy theory. It's now a documented fact with documents that have been released. You can go searching for them if you want. The fact is that's now confirmed as a fact, not a conspiracy theory. Um, indeed, everything I'm about to say 
you can go and research and find for yourself is no longer considered a conspiracy theory. Well, some people consider it that, but it isn't because it's backed up by cold hard facts, mo most of which come from the CIA themselves, having declassified documents. Namely, that Joseph Mengel was uh, smuggled into America, and one of the things he worked on um, was a thing called MK Ultra, Mind Control mm -hmm. Ultra, so called at mind and then control with a K because that is the German spelling of it, because he and other Nazis were involved. And now the nice cover story for this was that they were investigating um, to find ways to help people with shell shock, or as we now call it, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. That was their cover story, or may have been possibly their original intention, if we're being nice to them. Um, but that was their cover story. The truth is that during this, they had to inflict traumas on people to see how it was inflicted in order mm. to work out how to remove it and overcome it. Yes. And as a result, MKUltra ultimately was a massive study on trauma-based mind control. Now, that could be physical uh, trauma, sexual abuse trauma, or just emotionally induced trauma. But nonetheless, trauma-based mind control and how to use this to influence persuade and manipulate people to do things both with their conscious knowledge and also without their conscious knowledge and without their consent involving also drugs and hypnosis uh, and such things and at the same time as mk ultra was going on in the states some elements offshoots of different mk projects were being run at the tavistock hospital uh, in London, as it was then called, which later morphed into the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, which is now on the back in a back street of London, has its offices in exactly the same building as the British Psychological Society. Is that a coincidence? I think not. The British Psychological Society, those who look at the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Illness and Disease, a book that's voted on by a committee of what a new label should be given to, a so-called mental illness or disease, so they can justify prescribing drugs that often, as is the case with antidepressants, have little or no additional benefit other than placebo. Um, depression being a prime example with Irving Kirsch book mm. the uh, emperor's new drugs he did a meta-analysis of all the studies and it showed that basically placebo was as effective or more effective than the actual chemical drugs themselves uh, uh, anyway tavistock institute of human relations apparently just about how to persuade people for your organization's aims and all this that's the cover story on their website and yet their roots are in mk ultra um, trauma-based mind control and interestingly an offshoot of the Tavistock Hospital has its offices outside the Houses of Parliament in Westminster <laughs> and is known as the Behavioural Insights Team or as it's been dubbed in the world media certainly during the uh, uh, pandemic of recent times the nudge unit because they openly admit that they find ways to nudge people to think differently or believe differently or act differently. All of these things are being used, some would say, for the positive intent and aims of government, although government itself is made up of two words, govern 
control, and meant mind, so it, government means mind control. Um, but others would argue are being used nefariously. In any event, those techniques that they've spent millions and billions of pounds over the decades in studying and have only publicly admitted to a certain degree, because they always are five or six steps ahead of the game, are further proof that the kind of techniques that myself, by prodding the nest, and Paul by sharing that that he's used in... <laughs> In 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 the um, non-state diplomat um, world and other arenas, are based in if governments are using them, there's a reason. Um, mm. uh, and one other thing I mentioned for people is that along the way we'll probably mention a thing called Project Mockingbird, which was mm. the fact that the CIA openly admitted in the sixties into the seventies that they were planting people into the media as presenters on TV and radio shows, as journalists to control the narrative that the public got to hear to help influence, persuade and control. They say that ended, but you've only got to look at the fact that, for example, Rupert Murdoch, one of the world's most powerful media moguls, seems to have backed every winning horse, so to speak, in every uh, <laughs> election uh, for decades now. Is it that... Um, politics influences the media or is it media that influence the politics are they both being run by more powerful forces what are your thoughts on what some would consider to be somewhat conspiracy theory comments that i've just made my goodness that's what i think and you are a naughty boy um a very naughty boy um to be all uh monty python um what do I think? So I have to be careful what I say um, because I'm still linked and have relationships with people um, who have operated at the very highest levels in certain states in, glo they're in global propaganda leading it. So, yes, I am aware of very sophisticated ways of using propaganda which starts off by looking like it is completely against the outcome that they want but you need to create and you'll know this stuff off the back of your hand excellent book propaganda by edward bernays <laughs> okay yeah you've got it so it, it is true that in order to create if you Sorry, you were, you were going to mention destabilisation. Yeah, destabilisation. So you need to create destabilisation in order to open people up for greater suggestion to in all, uh, to accept a solution. Now, the destabilisation may be completely opposite to the solution you want, but you need to create it to start off with in order to create that level of interest and or hunger and or need in order for people to say yes. So they're more open to suggestion. So that does take place. We know that takes place. Um, I think as somebody like David I refers to that as problem reaction solution. Okay, okay. I've not come across this stuff. But, creates um, the problem. The governments will create the problem. So it creates um, a reaction of anger or fear okay. or yeah, yeah. some emotionally heightened reaction so that then the governments can come along and provide the solution or rather ideally end up that the mass populace when they react 
start requesting mm. a solution. And the only solution that would be logical is the one that the government wanted to impose in the first place, maybe more surveillance, for example. But because it's now suddenly being demanded by people, there's less resistance. Yeah, and I think it's maybe, you know, I'm, I'm an English guy. Um, so maybe it's more comfortable for me to think that other states do that um, because there's evidence that other states do it. And I suppose the question is, and does, does does this state do it? Well, I'll let viewers work out whether they think that might be the case or not. Um, I also know individuals who were at the very top of, not the, well, yeah, pretty high up actually, in particular organisations that influenced um influence certain campaigns on Facebook um, by harvesting data and their parent company. That was done by a company called Cambridge Analytica, which parents company with strategic communications uh, limited, I think. That might well be the case, Jonathan. <laughs> but, so, I mean, so if I know... viewers or listeners wanted to discover more about that, if they went to my friend Neil Saunders' website, <laughs> Neil, N-E-I-L, Sanders, S A N D E R S, Neil Sanders, mind control, um, dot com or dot co dot uk. It's one of them. Mm. You will find he has an audio podcast with multiple episodes going into all the provable, documented mm. truth about how Cambridge Analytica was a military grade um, weapon of the British government. You had to get permission to use it. Um, okay. Um, it was a proper psychological warfare, psychological operations, psyop, call it what you will, mind control weapon used to influence the Brexit campaign, the Trump campaign, and various other political campaigns around the world. I do believe. Yes. So I know individuals who have been whistleblowers at the senior levels in the state actors and in organisations such as the ones that you talk about, perhaps that the the revelations the things that they've been engaged with and seen and been part of strategizing around are staggering but they are only bigger and more sophisticated versions with a set of intentions behind them which i would suggest in a lot of cases are negative um of the stuff in inverted commas, that anybody uses wittingly or unwittingly, and we can understand how to do this when they want to genuinely help somebody move from A to B. How do we inoculate ourselves against that is the other, the countermeasures or inoculation. So I get asked sometimes, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I, am, I do do this kind of stuff, to work with uh, individuals who may be people of means well known to certain people and how do how do we prepare their children when they're traveling to not be manipulated by nefarious actors and it's all down to all again it's about how people use trust false teaming create destabilization you know a, a, a classic one that you can do and this this speaks to this point it's just a micro version of what's happening at a macro level in terms of influence and persuasion that if you destabilize somebody you hijack their amygdala which then triggers things in the system faster than the thinking brain can cope with known as the prefrontal cortex and therefore their openness to suggestion 
that's what's happening. And the way you inoculate yourself against that in terms of everyday life is watch less media. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Consume less media because it's it, the evidence is there. It's designed to get an outcome. And every tool and technique is used in order to do that. So just watch less stuff. Um, fast it if you want to use a religious terminology. Just fast media. You know, just get off the thing for a while. And actually you'll find that your stress levels will go down, your suggestibility, all that kind of stuff. And then with with these individuals I talk to, to train them to say, look, watch for this. And we go through different exercises. Um, if there's a shock that happens in a pub or a bar and you're traveling, if there's a loud noise and somebody approaches you very quickly after the loud noise and asks you to go with them, show them something or strike up a conversation or whatever, be very, very wary because you're highly suggestible at that moment because you are either consciously or unconsciously, depending on how big the stress is, reacting to the destabilization. It's the same as propaganda. It could be a loud noise. It could be an engineered crash outside a venue. It could be something happening in the bar, smashed glass next to you. And all of a sudden somebody appears and helps you, you know, be very wary in situations. And it doesn't mean we have to be suspicious, but it's how propaganda works. It creates destabilization, well, creates is, the need and just, a solution. What you've just described would be so-called social engineering or social conditioning. 100%. An extreme, a an extreme version of operant conditioning. Um, mm. Pavlov's dog elements of um, stuff that we will definitely go into in, in different episodes. Um, but people think of this as being the stuff of films. <laughs> But there are organisations that actually go to these extremes in the real world, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything from, you know, when you think about, I mean, it, this sounds very 007, and it's not 007, but it's exfiltrations. So say, for example, certain wars that are happening in the, around the world, how do you, you know, how do you get people out of those situations when you can't enter those countries? There are groups of people that went to those countries and they may use very physical means to do that, special ops groups, mercenary groups. But there'll also be settings as well where there's stable situations where they need somebody to go in and profile the behavior of people in that environment to brief the people ahead of the exfiltration that's going to take place and you're getting building trust with people, etc. They're using all of these techniques. And for your listeners and the viewers, What's been amazing to me is that people think that these techniques that are used in this security world or intelligence world are oh that it must be very very different to what we could use in therapy or business. No, they're exactly the same because human beings are exactly the same, and that's been something that's been a joy and a surprise to me. Is actually they're the same principles, and it's it's just that it's going right back to the beginning. People just use different words to mean the same thing. And the words make it sound like hocus pocus, fancy schmancy, secret squirrel. I can tell you from my experience, um, if you're operating legally, you are using the same stuff. Now, of course, if you're shutting somebody in a room, which I don't do and haven't done to create compliance. Yeah, you're using stuff. But then some of our greatest mentalists are using um, compliance techniques as well. 
Um, but they can just do it on stage. We're using that in the context of like Darren Brown doing mind reading yeah, sure. things on stage. Sure. Yeah. And that they're using they they're using a lot of these techniques, and they are masterful at it. And the editing team are obviously outstanding. I mean, I don't watch much stuff. I don't watch a lot of media, um, mainly because I've seen how people use it. So I have a very uh, have a very uh, um, strict diet on my media consumption because I'm as suggestible as everybody else. <laughs> I'm not immune, so <laughs> I uh, be care I take my own medicine and say just lay off eating too much of the media. <laughs> Now, just before we end, and I'm going to come back to you for the last words, um, I'm just going to somewhat, some will think egotistically and arrogantly, but hey, I'll get used to it, um, make some blatant plugs. But these are plugs for things that are free of charge. It's going to cost you absolutely nothing. All you need to do is tap into your keyboard, uh, youtube.com forward slash celebrity hypnotist. That is my YouTube channel. If you click on playlists, there is a playlist there called Hypnosis Week. And that is where this video recording will be in video form. So if you're listening to this on an audio <laughs> podcast and you want to see our body language and smiley faces and stuff, then go to the Celebrity Hypnotist YouTube channel, click on playlist, then click on Hypnosis Week and look for this episode, which will have in its title Interpersonal Neuro synchrony and you'll be able to see the visual version of it but whilst you're there um set yourself aside uh three or four hours to take a bigger dip into these areas and check out episode 17 of hypnosis week where i interview my friend and colleague robert phipps on <laughs> body language and non-verbal yeah, communication episode number 58 of Hypnosis Week, where I interview Chase Hughes, author mm -hmm. of the Ellipsis Manual on Mind Control, Persuasion, Influence, and Negotiation. Episode 73, where I interview American hypnotist Tom Silver, who openly talks about how to create mind-controlled assassins and stuff like that. The fact that you can make people do things against their will and against their conscious uh, moral values and whatnot. And most recently, episode 117, where I interview author of Free Your Mind, one of the co-authors, Patrick Fagan, uh, who actually used to work for uh, about eight, nine months towards the end uh, for Cambridge Analytica. And we talk a bit more about Cambridge Analytica <laughs> in that. Those things will pick your mind even more, but they won't even scrape the surface on what you can learn what you will learn and what you will benefit from by going to the link below this video or below the audio speaker on the audio podcast channel, clicking that link and going and grabbing with both hands like a crazy hungry madman who's not eaten in weeks, getting a first chance to get a nice three-course meal. Go right now and grab your early bird discount access to the complete interpersonal neurosynchrony video and audio training package where you're going to learn about all the things that I've mentioned, all the things that Paul has mentioned, our views on each other's things, different mm -hmm. perspectives, and a whole bunch of gold as well that we haven't even talked about in this episode stuff that will literally blow your mind but give you almost 
superhero tool bag of skills that you can use yeah. in all areas of life. I give you the floor, Paul. What would you say to people who are thinking about would it benefit them to sign up to the interpersonal neurosynchrony course? So from a selling point of view, um, in my corporate in my corporate world, um, our close rate is 80%. And the guy I work with is, wow. you know, former banking guy. And he said, it's truth. He said, what, what we're doing is extraordinary. And I said, it isn't in as much as it's taking some very well-known principles and boiling them down into bite-sized chunks that people can use. Um, people want that stuff because they want to get on in life and enjoy life, etc. So if you're interested in use, you know, applicable skills that are easily remembered, and I even create crib sheets if you're in meetings doing stuff and you can do quick profiles of people in meetings so that you can communicate with greater efficiency, uh, whatever content you've got in their structure, um, that's another thing altogether, then this is the kind of stuff for you. Um, if, if you're really skilled, a lot of this stuff, which I'm sure you are, because that's why you're doing what you do. Um, what I can help you do is to basically slow the process down so that you can a codify what you're doing so you can replicate it and teach other people and B maybe just maybe say, Hey, there might be some stuff you haven't thought about here. Um, it has an 80% hit rate when it comes to linguistics and body language and profiling and behavioral mapping and da, 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 da. Um, there's going to be some stuff in there for you as well. And so, yeah, and I would say, actually there's always something for everybody and it's about just relaxing slowing the internal clock down and grabbing hold of some of these things and, and actually seeing my old saying big doors swing on small hinges or as Pareto says 80 percent of the results come from 20 percent of the input so let's find out the 20 percent that's going to get you the 80 because life's too busy to try and fill up with other stuff yeah, indeed. And that's practical real world stuff, whether it's to sell more, help therapy yeah. clients achieve results quicker. Maybe there's people coming from the entertainment arena who want to be like Darren Brown. Now, the truth is, I know that arena inside out and I can tell you a lot of the stuff. It's purely a presentation, a storyline to the routine. And the actual secret is a magic trick and not anything to do with psychological principles. However, the stuff that we're going to be teaching will actually genuinely enable you to do things that look like and feel like to the people mm. you do them, like you mm. are reading their minds, or if you are so inclined, like you are some kind of psychic phenomenon. We will talk about cold reading, hot reading, psychological profiling, personal <laughs> as well. That this is just, I'm so excited um, that this, after. Um, a good number of weeks of getting together every few days or a couple of times and recording this, it's finally available to you guys and girls uh, to learn from, to benefit from, and um, to put to use in the real world. And with that in mind, go to the link now. Go, 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 go. The clock is ticking on that super early bird. But if you missed the super early bird, if you come up uh, across this, months down the line or weeks down the line, don't worry, it's still going to be genuinely, I know it sounds like a sales pitch, the best investment you ever make, as long as you do one key thing. Can you guess what that one key thing is? I'm going to say, Paul, I think you probably know me well enough by now. Sign, press the button. Well, that's one thing, they should do that now. But you know what? 
he's not good enough just to get the neuro um, interpersonal neurosynchrony course. Just getting it's going to do nothing. You have to actually watch it and listen to it. But watching and listening to it is also, well, it will help you be more aware of things, but you actually have to put it to use in the real world or in your world of therapy or in the dating arena or in the sales arena or whatever arena you want to use it in. You've actually got to put it into action because without taking action, you're not going to notice any change. But all the tools you need will be given to you, mainly by this genius, Mr. Paul Gutteridge. And I'll just stalk the wasp's nest (laughs) along. So it's thank you from me. And it's as the two Ronnies would say. (laughs) Thank you from him. (laughs) We'll be with you soon. Go hit that link and join us on the inside.